Hello, waterfowlers. This is the old timer coming to you once again. Downtown Memphis, looking out the river on a calm, cool June morning of about 68 degrees. Very pleasant. I'm going to be doing episode 27, which will be on migration. But before we get that, I want to go through some early reports on the duck situation in the breeding grounds. And we're going to go, you can always sort of count on North Dakota to come out first with some of their reports. And that's what I have here where I'm fixing to go over with you. And we'll go into a little bit of southern Saskatchewan and eastern Montana. But this is a report from North Dakota on the breeding situation. Extreme snowfall last winter across central and eastern North Dakota set up the state for good duck production this spring. Results from North Dakota Game and Fish Department's annual breeding waterfowl and wetland survey revealed good to excellent conditions for breeding duck. Due to lots of snow last winter, the state ended up with their seventh highest wetland index, which is a little bit less than last year, which was the second highest ever. But this year is still very, very good. The total numbers was estimated just above 3.4 million, a slight increase over the breeding population from 2022. While ducks are up overall, mallards were down 10% at 640,000, with blue-winged teal also slightly lower, but still a strong 925,000 in the state. Redheads, canvasbacks, and shelters numbers increased over 2022. But the most pleasant surprise is a 40% increase in breeding pintails, bringing their breeding population in North Dakota back to the numbers not seen in the state since the 2000s. Habitat conditions range from fair to excellent across North Dakota. Heavy rains in key areas in early May should lead to good duck production. Canada goose numbers declined 27%, however. They were an all-time high in 2022. The estimated 297,000 Canada geese represents a strong population, however. Seasonal wetlands, small shallow ponds and pastures, and crop fields that are so important for breeding ducks were abundant across the central and eastern portion of the state. Conditions for nesting ducks are still a little better this year than last year with lots of pastures and fields with seasonal ponds and water outside of the cattail rings in semi-permanent wetlands. That flooded cover helps ducklings avoid predators, and it's where they will go to survive, while Delta's predator management trappers are reporting a strong duck nesting effort this spring as they work to increase duck production. If North Dakota keeps getting rain, any ducks that lose a first nest will have a good opportunity to renest this year, and it will also help increase brood survival. North Dakota is a leading state for duck production, and a strong breeding season will feed ducks to all four flyways this fall. The annual North Dakota survey serves as an important first index of breeding duck numbers in the critical prairie pothole region. Conditions are generally good across the PPR, which is the prairie pothole region. 
although parts of the Saskatchewan and Alberta prairies are dry, which I'll get to in a minute. Just what kind of fall flights to expect will come into focus over the next couple of months. The United States Fish and Wildlife Service and Canadian Wildlife Service are completing and compiling data for the 2023 waterfowl breeding population and habitat survey. The results are expected to be released in August. The survey estimates the total duck population at 30.2 million in 2022. So you see it looks good for North Dakota. Now that's, that's exciting. But you have to keep things in mind. And this is a report from as they flew into Saskatchewan, what they saw there. And this may be the reason that North Dakota is looking so good. As they flew into Saskatchewan, the waterfowl, Habitat conditions in the southern and southwest grasslands conditions quickly deteriorated in the central and western grasslands near Kinsley, Saskatchewan. Severe drought conditions had dried up off almost all the wetlands, and these poor conditions continued into the western parklands. The area already looked pretty bleak, but with the addition of smoke from the wildfires in Alberta and northern Saskatchewan, it had an ominous appearance. The parklands east of Saskatchewan, while also abnormally dry, still had fair to good conditions for nesting and brood rearing. Now here's a report from southeast Alberta and part of eastern Montana, and the conditions look good there just like they did in North Dakota. This is southeast Alberta. The good habitat conditions continued as they moved north from Montana into southeast Alberta, where annual precipitation was normal for the year. Consequently, they counted many more wetlands and waterfowl in the area southeast of Lethbridge than we had in the past couple of years. Palkowski Lake, although not full, finally had some water and birds to count. Last year, the lake was almost dry, and they didn't think they counted one bird in that entire section of land. Habitat to the southwest of Lethbridge was considered to be fair, as the area was abnormally dry, but still contained a decent amount of wetlands overall. Habitat conditions deteriorated north of Lethbridge, as much of the area is experiencing moderate to severe drought. Many of the wetlands are dry or half of their capacity, leaving large bathtub rings of mud around them, limiting the availability of nesting cover for ducks. Because the number of wetlands is low, suitable nesting and rearing wetlands are crowded with high density of birds, making counting challenging at times. Drought conditions persisted north of Calvary, with the worst found north and east of Red Deer, where our ground crew counted the lowest number of ducks since 2010. We also found abnormally driving habitat in Edmonton, Lord Minister, and Coal Lake regions. Permanent wetlands were low with many below 50% of capacity. In the parklands and prairie habitat near Grand Prairie and Peach River, conditions improved somewhat with the significant precipitation the area received in mid-May. However, this area has been in moderate drought, and therefore the habitat is just considered to be fair despite a few good spots. So as you can see, there's a balancing act going on here. This is all waterfowl do. They're going to find the wetlands all. So it looks like they're concentrating in North Dakota and Montana, 
in the in the southern part of Alberta. But other than that, up in Canada, Saskatchewan and the northern part of Alberta doesn't look good. So hopefully it's all balancing out so it'll be similar to 2022. So we'll just have to see what happens. But before I get to episode 27, which is going to be the big six of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act of 1918, I just want to give you an interesting thing about migration. Up until the 19th century, before migration was understood, people had no explanation for where different species of birds disappeared every autumn. Some theories of the time held that they turned into mice or hibernated at the bottom of the sea or flew to the moon for the winter months. Greek writer Homer believed that cranes flew south in winter to fight the pygmies of Africa, a fable that was repeated by Roman naturalist Piney the Elder. Aristotle and his students believed that swallows hibernated, or that the birds that arrived for the winter were the transmuted birds they had seen all summer long. However, the general erroneous belief in Europe had been that during winter storks hibernated in the mud or transformed into some kind of creature. A 1703 pamphlet called An Essay Towards a Probable Solution of Migration said, Whence come the stork and the turtle dove, the crane and the swallow, when they know and observe the appointed time of their coming? But everything changed in 1822 when a white stork was shot by a hunter on the Beaumont Estate in Klutz, Mecklenburg, Germany. It had a 32-inch long Central African spear embedded in its sinus neck and had flown the entire migratory journey from its equatorial wintering grounds in this impelled state, some 2,000 miles. Now, this spear is also an air-looking thing. It left its autumn grounds riding the heavy thermal currents that allowed it to efficiently soar to its destination by following the Nile River south to eventually settle in various African countries, including Kenya, Sudan, and southern Africa. By unintentionally carrying this spear from Africa back to Germany in the spring, even though it was not intended as such, this spear was the first tracking device to further the study of the mysterious, elusive, incredible journey of migration. The stork was taxidermed with the spear intact and is today on display at the zoological collection of the University of Rockstadt in Germany. In 1899, Dutch teacher Hans Mortensen began putting aluminum rings on the legs of birds that he captured. He inscribed the bands with his address and instructions to contact him should the bands be found. In North America, bird banning, as it became to be known, started in 1902 when Paul Barsh banded black-crowned night herons in the central United States. Now banding is coordinated through the U.S. Bird Banding Lab and Canadian Bird Banding Office. The Arctic tern has the longest migration of any bird yet recorded, averaging 44,117 miles per year from Greenland to Antarctic and back. If the average Arctic tern lives 20 to 25 years, that's about 932,056 miles, 
to 1,087,390 miles in their lifetime. Truly incredible. Mystery and amazement winged their way magically overhead with every stroke of a bird's pinion. Arousing our imagination, this telestial phenomenon that still perplexes us has been one of the greatest mysteries of all times. So we ponder in all, whither, and why. Far into the night they pass with every wingbeat teeming with adventure and romance because these cavaliers of the air are genetically programmed. The southward journey of a multitude of waterfowl from their summer home in the north, flying high above, is one of nature's greatest spectacles. Led by the strongest of the flock, they settle at day upon the bosom of some wetlands where they rest and feed for days to give their young a rest and time to refuel, until at last, worn by some colder wind, they rise on their wings with small talk that grows soft and almost musical in the distance, heading unerringly on their way to the south. Both the spring and fall migration displays a picture of bird life and of unfathomable magnificence, presenting to our wondering eyes multitudes of these restless wanderers hurrying during the long dark nights of autumn or the starless midnight hours of spring by many interconnecting paths to the far-off quarters of their winter and summer homes. Each species follows at higher or lower reaches of the sky a sure and definite highway that leads them surely and safely along, dependent upon every physical configuration of the Earth's surface and at heights many thousands of feet above it. Little though we may think it, our fate lies in the safe keeping of waterfowl. Let them but fail us for several seasons, and all our anticipated hunting seasons go to naught. Their lives are tied up in our lives. Their protection is a debt of gratitude that we should pay willingly and eagerly. Migration is nature's great and final test. Today, as always, the demanding task of life weeds out the weak, the irresponsible, and foo hardly, as clearly as it did a thousand years ago. If it is a picture of beauty, it is one of stern beauty, of something like a daring, heroic effort, a crusade every year with only the fearless surviving. The ones that migrate in the spring and fall of the year have won their spurs in the greatest test of existence. Nowhere in the world is there to be found a truer appreciation of kindness than in the heart of waterfowl, and scarcely anything in the habits of waterfowl is more beautiful than its migration. From the earliest times, man has observed the regularity of the migration of birds. The old book, the Bible says, The stork in the heavens knows her seasons, and the turtle dove, crane, and swallows keep the time of their coming. Year after year, we are left to contemplate what would happen if the annual migration of waterfowl were to end for whatever reason. One hopes and prays this never happens, how lonely it would be without them. I close this little part with a poem, and it's by Bliss Carmen. When earth was finished and fashioned well, there was never a musical note to tell. So God made the marvelous birds for a choir of joy transcending words that the world might hear and comprehend how rhythm and harmony can mend the spirit's hurts and ills. So that was my reflection. Usually I end uh, my episodes with the reflection, but here I put it sort of in the front of it and hope you enjoyed it. 
Now we're fixing to do episode 27, and it's entitled The Big Six of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act of 1918. George Cyrus III was a man of means and was a senator from Pennsylvania who, looking over the situation in reference to the protection of birds, discovered that the states all had different seasons in which migratory game birds could be shot and that what the situation really amounted to was that game birds could be shot in different parts of the country all through the year. He decided that the only way to remedy this situation, which would in time result in the extension of game birds, was to put the matter under federal government control and thus do away with the constant and everlasting wrangling of the states. So in 1904, he introduced a bill in Congress for the protection of migratory birds. It was referred to the Agricultural Committee, where it died. A second attempt was tried in 1906, but it failed. This was the first enunciation of the principle of federal control of migratory birds. Activism for passage of a bill continued, however, and four years later, 1908, John B. Weeks introduced in the House the same bill with slight modifications. Nothing came of it. He introduced it again in 1909 and again in 1911, while at the same time, George P. McLean introduced a similar bill in the U.S. Senate. In the spring of 1912, committee hearings on the bill were begun. The Audubon Society got involved and urged that the bill be applied to all migratory birds, and this change was adopted. Both the Cyrus and Weeks bill mentioned migratory game birds only. Then there were only about 50 game birds, while there were 1,200 kinds of birds in North America. Probably a more significant agitation came from William T. Hornaday, one of America's foremost conservationists and director of the New York Zoological Society, who in his 1912 book, Our Vanishing Wildlife, sounded the alarm, among other things, that it is undeniable that the welfare and happiness of our own and of all future generations of Americans are at stake in this battle for the preservation of nature against the selfishness, the ignorance, or the cruelty of her destroyers. A continent without wildlife is like a forest with no leaves on the tree. It is time for a sweeping reformation, and that is precisely what we now demand. The backers of the Weeks-McLean bill realized there were lots of questions about its constitutionality. They also realized opponents would attempt to bring a case testing it to the Supreme Court. U.S. New York Senator Elihu Root sympathized with his objectives, but was opposed to the bill on the ground of his belief in its unconstitutionality. As a club member of the Boone and Crockett Club, which was highly supportive of the bill, it was due wholly to the influence that some of the club members brought to bear on him that his active opposition was withdrawn, and he appeased his conscience by introducing a resolution asking the president to negotiate a North American treaty on migratory birds which would preserve its constitutional legitimacy. He said this may be declared unconstitutional and everything lost, but we may be able to beat it. 
A treaty is not subject to revision by the Supreme Court, so why not get these ideas written into a treaty? It may be that under the treaty-making power, a situation can be created in which the government of the United States will have constitutional authority to deal with this subject. In order to complete the work begun by the Weeks-McLean Bill and revive the effort put forth by Root, John Burnham and his American Game Protective Association, with collaboration from the Boone and Crockett Club, was a logical organization to draft the treaty and push it through Congress. The detailed provisions of this bill were largely drafted by the Brune and Crockett Club members. Burnham's organization, which was the American Game Protective Association, and the U.S. Biological Survey, so all three, got together. The Migratory Bird Act, or MBA, commonly known as the Weeks-McLean Act, hidden as a rider to an agricultural appropriations bill, became a law on March the 4th, 1913, with President Trout signing it on the morning that he gave up his office as one of his last official acts. With this passage, authority was given to the Agricultural Department then to go ahead and make the rules governing the killing of birds. The department did not know anything about birds, so they turned it over to a special branch of the department, the Biological Survey, who drew up a lot of regulations and announced them to the states. Immediately, there was a roar of ejections from all over the country, and all the states thought their rights had been infringed. Before long, a test case arose from Big Lake in northeastern Mississippi County in Arkansas after a hunter Harvey Shaver killed two coots out of seasons in violation of the regulation. He was arrested and federal judge Joseph Treber for the Eastern District of Arkansas declared the federal MBA or the Migratory Bird Act unconstitutional. This is 1913, he declared it unconstitutional. The case, of course, then went to the U.S. Supreme Court, who was very hostile and the case dragged along for several months. They were not willing to get involved. Finally, the Supreme Court did a very unusual thing. It asked the Agricultural Department to restate its case, from which it was understood by most that the court vote was tied. So the case was referred back to the Department of Justice, who, fearing the outcome of a final test of the 1913 Migratory Bird Act, acted sufficiently to de delay the Supreme Court's action while conferring with many Eastern conservation organizations before going in front of the Supreme Court. In 1916, the machinery was set in motion, which would turn the bill into a treaty when the United States and Canada negotiated a first-of-its-kind international treaty, formerly known as the Convention between the United States and Great Britain, who acted on behalf of Canada for the protection of migratory birds, but more commonly called the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. Conservationist Hornaday worked tirelessly to achieve passage of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. He was a fiery, often abrasive wildlife activist, author, and lobbyist, widely credited with saving the American buffalo. His activism was the same for migratory birds. He said in a letter, at this very moment, a lot of gunners in Illinois are out in force banging from shore to shore. 
killing ducks that are going north to breed. So this is in the springtime. Warfare is being carried out contrary to the regulations of the Federal Migratory Bird Law of 1913. But as the gunners say, in accordance with the rotten laws of the state of Illinois, which permits spring shooting when not otherwise prevented, I often wonder how a duck can get through alive and how any duck could find feed and get a little rest on the journey without being killed. We are weary of witnessing the greed, selfishness, and cruelty of civilized man towards the wild creatures of the earth. It is time for a sweeping reformation, and that is precisely what we now demand. The cause of wildlife protection greatly needs three things, money, labor, and publicity. After a great deal of trouble, arrangements were finally concluded with Great Britain acting on behalf of Canada and a treaty was drawn up. But a treaty is a dead letter unless Congress, by law, states what department shall enforce it. That is in every treaty that requires an enabling act, which was drafted and handled adroitly by Virginia Representative Henry Flood. T. Gilbert Pearson, Secretary and Executive Officer of the National Audubon Society, went to Washington and has spent six weeks there trying to arouse interest in the, in the Enabling Act for the treaty. The treaty was ratified by Congress August the 16th, 1916, after Root encouraged conservationists to lobby the new administration of President Woodrow Wilson. Because of World War I, and for other reasons, delays occurred in the enactment of an implementing statute. So there was not until early 1918 that a treaty with Great Britain and Canada was enacted in 1918. As originally passed, the Migratory Bird Treaty Act provided that unless and except as permitted by regulations made as hereinafter provided, it shall be unlawful to hunt, take, capture, kill, attempt to take, capture or kill, possess, offer for sale, sell, offer to purchase, deliver for shipment, ship, cause to be shipped, deliver for transportation, transport, cause to be transported, carry or cause to be carried by any means whatsoever, receive for shipment, transportation or carriage or export at any time or any manner, any migratory bird included in the terms of the convention between the United States and Great Britain for the protection of migratory birds. Soon after this, on a bustery March day in 1919, a really distinguished party of five waterfowlers was shooting away cheerfully at mallards and bluebills in a marsh at Nevada, Missouri. Heading the list was Attorney General of Missouri, General Frank McAllister. How was it that the Attorney General was in the party, it was asked. Well... The Missouri folks, strong state rights advocates, had to be shown that this was constitutional. The five had an opinion that the MBA, the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, which had become law March the 4th, 13, I'm sorry, that was the Migratory Bird Act. That was in 1930, which among other things prohibited the shooting of waterfowl in the springtime was unconstitutional. They liked to shoot ducks spring and fall and they proclaimed vigorously that the act interfered with the sovereignty and with the property rights 
of the people of Missouri. So, Attorney General McAllister and his four friends went duck hunting on Stultz Lake in Clinton County, Missouri, March the 7th, 1919, and ended the hunt with 76 ducks. Apparently, they didn't care who knew it. Many believed that McAllister had even tipped it off to Ray Holland, a federal game warden. However, Holland told everyone his arrest was unexpected. Holland arrested the five who were arraigned at Clinton, Missouri. Attorney General McAllister took the case into court, asking for an injunction to restrain federal game wardens from enforcing the law. Federal Judge A.S. Van Valkenburg held the law constitutional and the state appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, which affirmed the constitutionality of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. The debate was defined as a state rights issue, and in challenging the treaty power of the federal government, the states were doomed to fail. Writing for the Supreme Court, Justice Holmes said, Here's a national interest of very nearly the first magnitude is involved. It can be protected only by national action in concert with that of another power, that being Canada. The subject matter is only transitory within the state and has no permanent habitat therein. But for the treaty and the statute, there soon might be no birds for any powers to deal with. It is not sufficient to rely upon the states. The reliance is in vain, and were it otherwise, the question is whether the United States is forbidden to act. We are of the opinion that the treaty and statute must be upheld. Through tireless efforts of the Big Six, John B. Weeks, George P. McLean, Gilbert Pearson, William Hornaday, George Showers III, and Elihu Root, millions of duck hunters owe gratitude especially the latter two, to George Cyrus III, who was a member of Congress from Pennsylvania. He began the fight right away back in 1904. Elihu Root, possibly the most commanding intellect in the country then, clinched the victory. The Migratory Bird Treaty Act paved the way for a century of accomplishments dedicated to ensuring the sustainability of migratory bird populations and their habitat across this continent. The legacy of the Migratory Bird Treaty is the recognition that these magnificent birds are held in public trust and shared by all citizens. Our responsibility is to make sure that this legacy endures by conserving and managing migratory birds and their habitats for future generations to enjoy. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. And if you get a chance, visit my website, waterfowling.net. It has on my blog a lot of old stories, which I haven't done on the podcast here before. So I think you'd enjoy it. Then you can see all of my books that I have. And if you see one you'd like, give me an email. I'll see what I can do for you. So visit waterfowling.net. I think for episode 28, I'm going to do Red Letter Days and what the Red Gods call. And for the Red Letter Days... I'm sure in the calendar of memories, the designer of all the pathways of human life, our creator, gives not only the simplest, but also the greatest gifts of our lives to the hunter what are called red-letter days, hoped for, waited for, prayed for, something sharply defined, 
the immediate power of strong emotions which leads one's thoughts through all the stages and gradations of emotions. So you're going to do red letter days and then the red gods. And the red gods, if you're a historian, you've read a bunch of old waterfowling books and they talk about the red gods. So you're going to find out who were the red gods because I always wondered who the heck they was until I just started doing research and sort of halfway found out. So I'll give you that when we tune in next Tuesday. So, so long and God bless.